Okay, please open your Bibles to John 14. And we are going to go fast today because I want to make sure that I get to this and I want to make sure that I don't um, have to cram time in that isn't mine. So I'm just going to start with John 14. We're going to read verses 8 through 14. Um, Before I do that, just to explain a little bit about this morning, today we're turning our series towards the last phase of the Holy Spirit series. I'm excited about where we're going next. I've been working with Andrew on that. I want to just clarify some things this week with, with Fred and Greg and then bring an update about next sermon series and maybe a a few messages before we do a full-on series, but excited about where we're going next in the Word of God. Um, But before we do that, we're going to finish this series, and right now we're entering the last phase, which is turning our hearts towards the Spirit's work for our outward mission. Turning our hearts towards the Spirit's work in our hearts for our outward mission. And like I'd mentioned last Sunday, if you were here, maybe the Sunday before, I planned to do a Q&A with Bob Grove right on the stage to talk with him about the Holy Spirit motivates Bob for evangelism, what that looks like in his real life. We are still going to do that, Lord willing, but because we're going shorter this morning and we got other things going on, Bob and I thought, I conferred with him yesterday, asked him, he thought it'd be better to wait until next week to do the Q&A. But we're still going to begin this new section in our series. So today is going to be sort of part one of a, of a, a two or three part a a message on turning our hearts hearts outward and we're going to talk about this today and next sunday in a longer message and and basically what i want to try to do is answer this basic question that's going to pop up in verse 14 today and next week so we're going to answer a basic question and then next week we're going to dig deeper into it and talk more about the holy spirit and how he interacts with that basic question so i'm going to read you a text i want you to be thinking in your mind what's the biggest question you could think of when you hear this text. John 14, 8 through 13, 8 through 14. Would you listen as I speak the very words of the Lord? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Oh God, how much I need your help. I I didn't get the prayer time I usually get right before the message down there in the seats, and so I'm feeling especially needful of extra resources right now of prayer. And so I pray with my church family, Lord God, would you please bless the preaching of your word today? Lord, bless your people through the preaching of your word. Bless your people through what I'm doing. And despite what I'm doing, Lord, work in our hearts, your will, your sustaining grace, your husbanding love for your precious bride this morning through your holy word. 
Lord, we thank you that you hear and answer this prayer because we pray it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on our behalf is far beyond sufficient to engender your love towards us and to draw out from your heart every good thing we need. In his name we pray. Amen. So did did any significant question pop into your head as we went through this text? The question that popped into my head and has popped in my head many times is this one. And this is the one question I want to try to engage today is what does Jesus mean when he says the works that I do, you will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to the father. We covered this section in our John series, but I don't believe we got into that question in our John series, because we can't do everything. But now that we're in this Holy Spirit series and we're turning our hearts towards the outward mission of the church, we've got to answer this question. Greater works than Jesus. What does it mean when Jesus says that those who believe in him will do greater works than him? Isn't this the Son of God who raised Lazarus from the dead, who walked on water, who fed thousands with a few loaves of bread, a couple of fish, cast out demons with a word, whether he was there or not, gave sight to the blind, helped the lepers. Yes, that's the Jesus we're talking about. And so that's the Jesus who says to you, you're going to do greater works than I because I'm going to the Father. So if you you hear this verse, you might have two reactions. Number one, this promise was only for the apostles and their age. It was only for those big guys. Number two... Even if it's for me, I'm simply not spiritual enough to be able to receive the promise and live it out. So I want to talk about those those typical reactions. The first reaction, the promise was only for the apostles in their age. And, And I would just say, in answer to that question, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that there is something special about the apostles. They were specifically and uniquely called by Jesus as eyewitnesses to his life, death, and resurrection. And he says in John 15, you... Also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And we're told in John 17 that all who are converted believe because of the word of their testimony. In Jesus' prayer, he prays for us saying, I pray for those also who will believe in me because of their, the apostles' word. So we have this special, unique, precious testimony of the apostles that can't be repeated. Hebrews 2 even seems to indicate that those who heard directly from Jesus' own mouth would be empowered in a special way. Quoting Hebrews 3, 4, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. But on the other hand, Jesus does not qualify these words to just the apostles in John 14. He says, whoever believes in me, he who believes in me. And everything I know about that preposition in Greek, it means everybody. It means you and I too. And we know that we are also among those who receive the gifts that Jesus gives to the entire church. Gifts of miracles, gifts of healing, gifts of works in keeping with things that Jesus did. So if this promise means... On one hand, we're all going to have the exact same power for miracles that Jesus and the apostles had. I think there's some qualification in order. But the idea that miracles and healings are not for the church today, I don't believe it has a biblical warrant. I think it sets low expectations for the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think it can cater to our own apathy and lack of faith that we would agree with that. But, But to the second reaction, you're just not spiritual enough to live out this promise. I would say again, 
Do yourself a favor. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12. See the gifts given to the church. And you'll see, at least in categories, the, the same empowerment Jesus experienced. Miracles and healing through the Holy Spirit on earth are promised to the church. And so you, as part of the church, are recipients, either individually or as part of his very body, among whom some get this gift and some get another, you receive this promise from Jesus to be able to do the things he did and even greater things. But hopefully, some of you might be catching something. All, All of what I said is predicated on the idea that Jesus has miracles in mind in the way that we think of him when he makes this promise that you'll do greater works than I. I think it includes that, but I think it means something much, much more. I believe the works that Jesus is referring to as greater than the works that he did is the work of conversion. The work of converting souls from eternal damnation to eternal life. So when Jesus says greater works than these he will do, I believe our Lord is referring to the work of his apostles and the work that he's given to the church for the entire church age to bring lost souls from hell to heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit. And briefly, very briefly this morning, as briefly as I can, without acting like I drank seven gallons of caffeine this morning, which my, yeah, which I probably, my wife probably thinks I sound like I did. But very briefly this morning, I'd like to give three answers as to why I believe, and I think the scriptures proclaim that conversion of souls is is the greater work that Jesus speaks of. Number one, conversion of souls is a greater work than the works that Jesus did on earth because it is what all other works of Christ were for. The New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus came into the world not primarily to perform miracles, but to save sinners from eternal damnation and bring them to eternal life. John 3.16 makes this plain. God so loved the world that he gave his one only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Mark 10.45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And what to do? To give his life as a ransom for many God sent Jesus to save from hell. That is why he came. He did not come simply to amaze with miracles or cure our physical woes. And this saving that Jesus came to procure for God and for the world, it comes through faith, through belief, through trust in the message of the gospel. That's the means by which we receive the salvation of Jesus And so in that vein, we see why Jesus did miracles of power. It's because of that goal to proclaim the gospel, to certify it, to affirm it, that he did miracles over nature, healing of diseases and deliverance from demons. Of course, Jesus was compassionate. He wants to save the whole person. But Jesus' miracles had a far greater purpose than the amazement or temporary comfort of this life. They were to bring people to faith, to save them from hell through the gospel he preached. In Mark 1, we have a record of a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. It's a day of miracles. It's a day of fantastic miracles, healing of demons, all sorts of diseases. The whole city, Mark says, had come to Jesus' door. It literally says the whole city was gathered up around Jesus at this doorway, lining up in droves to be healed or delivered by a word. But the next morning, Jesus is gone. He's praying in a quiet, lonely place, and he's found by the disciples. And they come to him, and they say, they say, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says, 
let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach. For that is what I came for. In John 4, Jesus even begins to speak of miracles almost as a concession out of necessity. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In Matthew 16, Jesus says about the religious leaders who were looking for miracles to test Jesus, to get him to try to prove who he was. He says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But yet Jesus would do them because an evil and adulterous generation needs to believe. In Luke 5, Jesus hears a paralytic before the Pharisees and scribes. He does it with these words. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. But they listen to Jesus' reply and they say, how can this be? Only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy. Jesus knows their thoughts and he says to them, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. What was the goal of that miracle? So that these people would know that Jesus was the Son of Man who had authority to forgive sins, that their sins might be forgiven too. All the miracles Jesus did were to bring faith in Him as Savior and Lord so that people might be saved. And in this sense, conversion is a greater work than anything else that Jesus did. Number two, the second reason, as briefly as I can, that I believe that conversion is a greater work is because it's an eternal work. Listen, folks. Listen. Miracles are awesome Healings are awesome. I want them. I want to see them. We want to see more of them. We want to enjoy them and celebrate them and proclaim who God is through them. But every limb that Jesus heals goes back into the ground lifeless. Every leper that Jesus cured loses the greater battle to decay in the grave. It can rightly be said that as great as the raising of Lazarus from the dead was, he would have been wise after he, raised him, after he was raised from the dead. He would have been wise not to look for a refund on his tomb. He would need it again. Martin Lord-Jones said, I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he's right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a distressed soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face eternity in hell. God does want to heal people in body, mind, and soul, but he wants that healing to be eternal. And this only comes when we turn to Christ for his mercy and salvation, which brings me to my last reason. Conversion is a greater work because hell is real. Conversion is a greater work because hell is real. Folks, there is no truth so awful and no pain so deep if we're feeling as we ought to feel. And so often I do not feel as I ought to feel. But there is no pain so deep if we're feeling as we ought to feel than that those who go through this life without Christ enter the next life into eternal conscious suffering. There is nothing in Scripture so awful as the truth of the doctrine of hell. But it is there and it is true and it is therefore our good 
In Revelation 14, we see this vivid picture of the gospel preached to a dying world on the verge of terrible judgment. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the marks on its name. These are the words of God. Now, the context in this passage is the worship of the beast, this end times figure who represents rebellion against God. But the people who follow this beast, they are akin and of a peace with all those who reject Christ now. And their fate is the same. There is simply no way to overestimate the tragedy waiting for so many who do not know Jesus. All the miraculous healing works that Jesus did or that we do, unless they lead people to believe in Christ and become his disciples, they are simply tragically wasted reprieves from an eternal suffering which will one day begin and never end. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Meditate with deep solemnity upon the fate of the lost sinner. And like Abraham, when you get up early, go to the place Where you commune with God. Cast an eye towards Sodom and see the smoke thereof going up like the smoke of a furnace. Shun all views of future punishment which would make it appear less terrible. And so take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortal souls from the quenchless flame. That is a Good and hard warning. Shun all views of future punishment which would make it appear less terrible. And so take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortal from the quenchless flame. If men are indeed only a nobler kind of ape and expire as the beasts, you may well enough let them die unpitied. But if their creation in the image of God involves immortality... And there is any fear that through their unbelief they will bring upon themselves endless woe. Arouse yourselves to the agonies of the occasion and be ashamed at the bare suspicion of unconcern. At the end he says, there will be no fear of your being lethargic, he means in evangelism, if you are continually familiar with eternal realities. 
And so I, I put forth again the greater work that Jesus has for you and I are works of being his ambassadors and calling people from eternal condemnation to eternal life. As Philippians says, we are those who live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. I know this is heavy, sobering stuff. But I just felt this burden this week looking at this text that we just not kid around. That we face this. This is real. This is why this church is here. It's not the only reason we're, we're called to not just make disciples, but to teach disciples, to teach one another. But all around us, the Lord is telling us, people are going to hell forever without me. And how I need to taste that and feel that and fear that for them. I'm not saying what application that means, whether I should go to Zaire and be a missionary or you should go to, you you know, Iraq and be a missionary. I'm not even, but it just starts with embracing that truth that God is asking us to face. People are going to eternal suffering without Jesus. So a few application points with the three minutes I have left here. Number one, brothers and sisters, rejoice in your salvation. Don't forget that it is the greatest miracle in the universe. It is the greatest miracle in the universe. Healed limbs and healed diseases, they do not compare with you being given a new heart and you being pardoned from the hell that you deserve and I deserve. It's a humbling and beautiful thing to embrace the reality that you've been saved from a terrible, terrible future that God says you actually and I actually deserve. It puts things into perspective. It makes the present torments not feel very tormenting in some ways at some times. When the disciples came back thrilled that they cast out demons and healed with miracle power, do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said to them, hey, don't rejoice that you've done all these powerful, amazing things. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Because that was the greater miracle that those other miracles were for. Those other miracles were good. We want them. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But we want them to point towards him and salvation in him. Number two, be aware of eternal realities. We are too poorly nourished on heaven and hell. And this week I'll try to recommend some passages and resources for us to consider reflecting on. First Peter 3 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we want to be aware of eternal realities so that we can be prepared to offer people hope. And when you walk out the door, there's a little pamphlet you can get on the table out there called Two Ways to Live. It's a nice tract. It's just an easy document, short little pack to just read through and equip you to make sure that you are prepared to give a defense of the hope that lies within you. Do you know how to share the gospel? First Peter 3 isn't saying, go out in the streets tonight and share the gospel. First Peter 3 is saying, are you ready? 
Are you prepared? Am I prepared to know what the gospel is, to give it to people who need it, to hold close to my heart these eternal realities of heaven and hell that are the most real things in this cloudy world that exists? So my final application is, folks, I just want to encourage you this week, grab one of those pamphlets on your way out, Two Ways to Live. I'm gonna, we'll be asking care groups to go through those this week and next week to work on this gospel with each other to make sure that we're equipped to share it because we've got good news. And next week, we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit equips us and prepares us and encourages us and helps us to share his truth. Amen. Amen.